I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Home. Home on the range. It's high noon for Monday, December 13th, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcotour.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. Today is the 327th day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president, Joe Biden, who was overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You've begun to figure out that not everything is going quite right. And then when you kind of understand what the issue is, you shrug and you say, well, it's going to be impossible to fix. No one cares. And your solution, as always, is to not care. The issue is too big. It's too broad. It's too hard to understand. It's too hard to get our hands around. It's too hard to fix. Therefore, what we need to do is, rather than caring and trying to fix it, we should throw our support behind someone who says they care and wants to fix it. So that we can go right back to not caring, because not caring makes everything easy. Looking like you care is good. Saying the things that will make other people think you care is good. But caring, that's a hard ask. Now, if you are beginning to realize that it's very hard to say that problems won't get solved because no one cares, while you're one of the people who doesn't care and you believe that no one cares because you only know people like you, well, maybe the issue is that you don't believe that problem actually affects you. Because if it was affecting you, well, then you'd care. Now, since we are all part of one society and the things that some people do affect the things other people do, you might consider that eventually the problems that are affecting everybody else are going to affect you. And unless your plan is to meet the same fate a little later, you might want to just start actually caring and join with all the other people who already care. You see, there's a lot of them out there. You just don't know any of them. And that, my fair commie, is because you are in a very small bubble. Now, if you're ready to get out of that bubble and return to a connection with humanity, then I encourage you to come on and migrate back to America. And to do that, all you need to do is get rid of all those stupid and evil communist ideas and then go around and make amends with every single person you have shamed and bullied and slandered and censored and tried to get fired from their jobs. And when you do that, 
we will accept you with open arms back into this American project of human liberty and self-governance because the American project is better when more Americans are involved. And we all believe that we're actually not looking to punish you so long as you migrate back to America and stop trying to ruin everything for everyone else by ushering in global communism. But if you can do that, if you can do those two things, just admit the problem, let those ideas go and make amends. Well, then to you, I would extend a warm high noon welcome and to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. Welcome back. It's Monday. We've got this week. We've got next week. Then we've got holidays. But I'll tell you what, if you listen this week and next week, by the time those holidays come around, you're not going to hate half your family anymore, or maybe 70% of your family. There's a very, very strong chance that you are the one with the severe mental and emotional problem. Hey, sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Don't kill the messenger. But the people around you saying that, yeah, Trump actually did win that 2020 election and uh, COVID's not that dangerous and the vaccines kind of are. Did you see those soccer players just collapsing on the field this weekend? Like a guy from Manchester United and another player from Napoli. Those are big teams, national television, worldwide television, soccer players just clutching their chests and collapsing. Young guys, premier athletes just collapsing from chest pain. Is everything normal? No, everything is very, very far from normal. And you can see it. Everybody else in your family can see it. That's why they're on the no-no team now. But I'm telling you, listen for two weeks. By Christmas, you'll be American again. That is my promise to you. And no matter what, we really need to dispel this kind of thinking right here. Hyperbolic. But John Hellman, I'm curious if you think it is. The headline is Trump's next coup has already begun. Trump and his party have convinced a dauntingly large number of Americans that the essential workings of democracy are corrupt, that made up claims of fraud are true, that only cheating can thwart the victory at their polls, that tyranny has usurped their government, and that violence is a legitimate response. Hyperbolic or fact? Fact, I think. And, and I think the thing about the strength of this Gelman piece is it lays out, first of all, the extraordinary reality that there's this research that shows that something like at least 8% and maybe as many as 12% of the American people now say that Joe Biden was illegitimate and that violence is an appropriate tool to removing him and restoring Donald Trump. That's somewhere between 20 and 30 million people. That's a mass movement in America in favor of political violence, which is a new thing. We've had political violence in America before, lynching many things over the course of time that African-Americans suffered from. But this is 30 million people right now who are ready to take up arms you put that together with what the president, the former president, I should say, and his allies are doing in the political realm, yeah. state houses, state legislatures, and the party apparatus to be able to engineer a situation where they are in a stronger position to pull off a coup in 2024 than they were in 2020. That's not hyperbolic at all. Those are all facts. You are playing producer here. In fact, I have a scroll here of everybody the former president, Brendan, has endorsed that has a role in certifying elections. I'm not included members of Congress in here. He's gotten involved in state Senate races, state house races, and there is just one litmus test, just one. Um, this is, this feels as if we're entering 
uh, a place that is going to get darker and darker if the election is less than 1% on any level. Yeah, I don't actually, I'm not too concerned about voting laws in Georgia and Texas, and I know some people may disagree with that. What really concerns me is people like Jody Heiss, who's a Freedom Caucus member in the House who's running for Secretary of State in Georgia. Now, the only reason he is running for Secretary of State in Georgia is he wants to take out Brad Raffensperger, who is the Georgia Secretary of State, who pushed back on all of Trump's claims and said that the election was not stolen there. Now, if, if we have people all across the country who are put in the position where they will not uh, uh, confirm or uh, certify a, an election result, that's the nightmare scenario that I'm worried about. And, and he, it's very clear that that's what they're trying to do all across the country. And then you take it a step further, um, the real nightmare scenario is a GOP Congress in the House that won't certify a, 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 a Democratic election down the road. But uh, I think some of those things are, are the, the things that people talk about the most right now, the voting yeah. laws, those are not actually the real big concerns. So that was Meet the Press. That's Chuck Todd, John Heilman, and then a guy named Brendan Cuck, I mean Buck, who was a former advisor to speakers Paul Ryan and John Boehner. That guy is an establishment Republican cuck. So wait, I was correct about that. Yeah, cuck. They're all having a collective meltdown over an article that was written in the Atlantic last week by Barton Gelman. And it is imagining a second Trump coup, or maybe it's a third in 2024. Because, you know, there was a coup to steal the 2016 election because Russia helped him, except that completely fell apart. There's no proof whatsoever of that. That was all premised on the Steele dossier that was paid for by Hillary Clinton's campaign. Obama and Biden were briefed about it. Everybody knew it was fake, but they went with it anyway. In fact, they extended it into two or three years of undermining a duly elected American president. And when that didn't work, they brought up the fake impeachment hoax with Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is a problem for Joe Biden and for the Democrats, their corruption there, selling out American interests there. That's what they were trying to obscure by launching that fake impeachment. And then, of course, January 6th, that was another coup. And yes, it was staged by the FBI and the Capitol Police. And yes, there are political prisoners rotting in prison right now who did nothing other than walk into the Capitol after the Capitol Police allowed them to walk in. Many protesters were beaten that day, and video of that is going to be emerging in the next few weeks. Many of us have known about that for months and months, and we are now supposed to imagine that America First voters getting involved at a local level in their election process is another coup. We are not allowed to involve ourselves in the election process. That is the purview of only the Democrat Communist Party and the people they hire, the people that they use to steal elections. They're the only ones allowed into that process. Like all of the people hired through Stacey Abrams group, Happy Faces. And we're going to start hearing more about that again this week as there are a couple of hearings happening in Georgia. So in this Gelman piece, they are talking about this 8% or 12% of the country who believe that the election was stolen because it was stolen. And then it says that they're also supportive of violence to restore the presidency to its proper winner, which would be Donald Trump. Now, they get this number from a survey that was conducted 
in September. And here is what they're referring to. This piece is from a site called The Conversation. This is September 23rd, 2021. 21 million Americans say Biden is illegitimate and Trump should be restored by violence. Survey finds. This piece is by a man named Robert A. Pape, who is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago. And it notes that he receives funding from the Tawani Foundation. The Tawani Foundation is founded by billionaire philanthropist Jennifer Pritzker, who used to be James Pritzker and his cousins with Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. And Jennifer Pritzker has donated to such illustrious organizations as the Lincoln Project. But here's the article. A recent Washington demonstration supporting those charged with crimes for the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol fizzled with no more than 200 demonstrators showing up and at least 10 FBI agents. The organizers had promised 700 people would turn out or more. But the threat from far right insurrectionists is not over. For months, my colleagues and I at the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats have been tracking insurrectionist sentiments in U.S. adults. Most recently in surveys in June, we found that 47 million American adults, nearly one in five, agree with the statement that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump and Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. And of course, the number is actually far higher than that, but we'll go on. Of those, 21 million also agree that use of force is justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency. Now, that description sounds pretty open for interpretation and does not necessarily imply anything about the citizens taking up arms and using force themselves, although they're going to go ahead and imply that no matter what. Our survey found that many of these 21 million people with insurrectionist sentiments have the capacity for violent mobilization. At least 7 million of them already own a gun, and at least 3 million have served in the U.S. military and so have lethal skills. <laughs> yeah, it's 3 million Liam Neesons. Of those 21 million, 6 million said they support right-wing militias and extremist groups, and 1 million said they are themselves or personally know a member of such a group, including the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, and probably anything else that they are going to classify in their own terms as right-wing extremist groups. Only a small percentage of people who hold extremist views ever actually commit acts of violence, but our findings reveal how many Americans hold views that could turn them toward insurrection. A solid survey. In June 2021, our group commissioned a survey done by the independent, nonpartisan researchers at NORC at the University of Chicago, seeking to discover how widespread insurrectionist sentiments are among U.S. adults. The research methods meet the highest standards in the polling industry, a random sample of a representative sample. It's the same process NORC uses to conduct polling for the Associated Press, the federal government, and other major institutions. First, NORC pulls together a panel of 40,000 people called Amerispeak, who are representative of the entire U.S. population on dozens of characteristics, such as age, race, income, location of reg residence, and religion. From that representative sample, NORC drew a random sample, in our case, 1,070 people. This polling found that 9% of American adults say they agree with the sentiment that use of force is justified to restore Donald J. Trump to the presidency. Now, that view could just mean they actually think that, for instance, 
the military understanding that an American election was stolen and then replacing the illegitimate president with the rightful president would be a good idea. And that, of course, is not an unreasonable expectation from a military whose sworn oath is to uphold the Constitution rather than allow it to be trashed as it was in November of 2020. And 25% of adults either strongly or somewhat agree with the statement that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump and Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. Overall, 8% of the survey participants share both of those views. The margin of error from this survey was plus or minus four percentage points. So when calculating the number of the 258 million adult Americans who hold these views, we looked at the range between 4% and 12%, which gave us between 10 million and 31 million. The best single figure is the middle of that range, 21 million. People who said force is justified to restore Trump were consistent in their insurrectionist sentiments. Of them, 90% also see Biden as illegitimate and 68% also think force may be needed to preserve America's traditional way of life. Combined with their military experience, gun ownership, and connections to extremist groups and militias, this signals the existence of significant mainstream support in America for a violent insurrection. And obviously, no, it doesn't. This group of 21 million who agree that force is justified to restore Trump and that Biden is an illegitimate president has two additional views that are also on the fringes of mainstream society. 63% agree with the statement that African-American people or Hispanic people in our country will eventually have more rights than whites, a belief sometimes called the Great Replacement. 54% agree that a secret group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles is ruling the U.S. government, which is the key belief in the QAnon movement. And we can see from this survey that it was very, very, very serious. Some people with insurrectionist sentiments hold one of these political views, but not the other, suggesting there are multiple ways of thinking that lead a person toward the insurrectionist movement. The latest research reinforces our previous findings that the January 6th insurrection represents a far more mainstream movement than earlier instances of right wing extremism across the country. Those events, mostly limited to white supremacist and militia groups, saw more than 100 individuals arrested from 2015 to 2020. But just and that was just, by the way, FBI informants, (laughs) but just 14 percent of those arrested for their actions on January 6th are members of those groups. More than half are business owners or middle aged white collar professionals, and only seven percent are unemployed. Oh, my gosh, the danger. There is no way to say for sure when or even whether these insurrectionists will take action on January 6th. It took clear direction from Donald Trump and other political leaders to turn these dangerous sentiments into a violent reality. But the movement itself is larger and more complex than many people might like to think. So this, this excellent journalism and analysis from a very, very serious college professor who does not have any conflicts of interest is being cited as proof that somehow there is a violent movement out there looking to stage an insurrection against the government and depose the illegitimate president, Joe Biden. That just simply is not true. From every single corner of the movement that knows Joe Biden is illegitimate, there is not any, any sort of violent insurrectionist tendency involved in any of it. And there wasn't on January 6th either. And we'll get the full truth of that story in the coming weeks 
and everyone will see for themselves that this was all a lie. This is the next lie that's meant to layer on to that. You can tell since they've been going after this same article for a week that they are really trying to set this narrative into the public understanding of what's going on, even though they can't back it up with anything other than this ridiculous survey. So theconversation.com actually lists their partners and funders. And initially they list partner universities that they work with. Uh, SUNY Binghamton, Boston University, University of Florida, University of California, Georgia State University, University of Massachusetts Amherst, Michigan State, Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, Rutgers, University of South Florida, Texas A&M, Tufts, and Vanderbilt. And then we get to strategic partners and funders. So under strategic partners, it lists only one group, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Are you shocked? No, you're not. Here are the funders, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Association of Theological Schools, the Burroughs Wellcome Fund, Carnegie Corporation of New York, donors to The Conversation U.S. Those are individual donors, and they actually do list many of them on a separate page. Also, the Ford Foundation, Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Hearst Foundation, Henry Luce Foundation, Howard Hughes Medical Institute, the Knight Foundation, the Lemelson Foundation, Lilly Endowment Incorporated, Lumina Foundation, NIHCM, the National Institute for Healthcare Management, Rita Allen Foundation, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Science Sandbox, the Spencer Foundation, and the Walton Foundation. And they list many more universities that are members of the conversation group. Now, what I basically read for you is the roster of the all-star team of global communist financiers. And so those are the people responsible for funding this ridiculous project where they are making it their mission to go out and label Americans who want election integrity and can see from the obvious and overwhelming evidence that Joe Biden didn't win the election and neither did many of the other people currently sitting in illegitimate office right now. Following along the same lines, this weekend in the New Republic, there is a headline Worthy of the onion or the Babylon Bee. This is by Jason Lincolns on Saturday is criticizing Joe Biden, a danger to democracy. That's right. The communists at the new Republic have realized that free speech is a threat to the global communist order. This week, President Joe Biden hopped onto Zoom in an effort to shepherd the world along the path to stronger global democracy during a two-day summit with other world leaders. He'll be making his case, however, amid growing concerns about democracy here at home. On Monday, the Atlantic's dedicated doom scroll provider, Barton Gelman, unleashed his latest flurry of frets, warning that Trump's next coup has already begun. His masthead mate, George Packer, followed up with a piece that urged readers to imagine democracy's unthinkable demise in order to stave it off. Yes, imagine that everyone was attacking everything until you yourself are scared enough to want to prevent more than half the country from having their constitutional rights and so that you are mad enough 
to actually go out in the streets and attack everything. You know, Democrats, like you were last summer in 2020, where you thought you were solving racism by burning down cities. Whether we like it or not, there is reason to be gravely concerned. But against this backdrop, an interesting debate has broken out about the press's role in protecting our two fragile institutions and raveled civic fabric from a Trumpian assault. And whether the media, in an effort to support democracy, must unflinchingly support Biden as well. And if this argument sounds kind of familiar to you, you might recognize it since they've been making it for the last five years as they were justifying biased and dishonest journalism and the propagation of fake news in an effort to undermine the duly elected president. Over the weekend, the Washington Post, Dana Milbank, made considerable waves with a column that rather lustily accused the media of offering President Biden worse coverage than President Trump. At first blush, this might seem impossible, if only because Trump's actions through corruption, incompetence, and the need to constantly battle the media made it almost impossible to cover him favorably. Oh, yes, that was the problem. He was not doing anything that they could call good. So instead, they just called everything he was doing bad. <laughs> These people are unbelievable, man. They are unbelievable. This is a complete bizarro world. Milbank, however, marshaled some statistics from data analytics experts who combed through hundreds of thousands of articles to provide a detailed sentiment analysis supporting his thesis that Biden's press for the past four months has been as bad as and for a time worse than the coverage Trump received for the same four months of 2020. Oh, okay. So you found statistics. Someone went back and studied so that you could have a statistical analysis to support the utterly absurd thing you're saying. You see, the problem is the coverage of Joe Biden that is bad is written by a bunch of commie reporter hacks who are holding their noses while doing it and trying to put a positive spin on what is undoubtedly the worst, well, fake presidency anyone could ever imagine. On the other hand, they were just trying to take Donald Trump down all the time for pretty much no reason other than his personality and the fact that he was making the initiation of the global communist order much more difficult. And this is how they reacted. But Milbank's most provocative idea posited that the media needed to be partisan in service of democracy. The country is in an existential struggle between self-governance and an authoritarian alternative. And we in the news media collectively have given equal, if not slightly more favorable, treatment to the authoritarians. Now, if you'll recall, the New York Times spent a lot of time in the last few years arguing that they didn't have to cover anything objectively because to do so would be an exercise of white privilege. They would need to cover everything in a biased sense so that they could make up for systemic racism in journalism. Not everyone took this message well. Politico's Ryan Lizza responded to Milbank on Twitter. No respectable model of salvaging democratic norms would include badgering journalists to write only positive stories about the most powerful person in the world. Now, he might be correct about that, but describing Joe Biden as the most powerful person in the world is already absurd. Lizza is correct, 
Blind fealty to heads of state is the hallmark of dictatorships, not democracies. Oh, good. They've realized that halfway through the piece. If democracy was measured along those lines, we'd be looking to Equatorial Guinea for guidance, not Joe Biden. How does it profit democracy to give Biden a pass on, say, overselling the insulin price reductions in the Build Back Better bill? Accountability is central to any cause of democracy. When Jen Psaki rudely mocks the idea of sending rapid tests to every American, any defender of democracy keenly aware of the public need and potential to revive such civic spirits would and should offer a repost. Moreover, while Biden is certainly no enemy of the democratic process, yeah, he just stole an election and sells his office to the highest foreign bidder while compromising American interests. But no, no enemy to the democratic process at all. While Biden is certainly no enemy of the democratic process and not solely to blame for the fact that Democrats in Congress have failed to pass a voting rights bill, it's not clear he's truly earned the right to be considered one of its most ardent defenders. His administration's tepid response to the threat of voter suppression is a case in point. In August, the White House dubiously suggested that it could be outorganized. In October, the Atlantic's Peter Nicholas reported that a White House official reduced voting rights to the level of a boutique concern among a niche constituency. Every constituency has their issue. If you ask immigration folks, they'll tell you their issue is a life or death issue, too. You see that they know that what they're doing isn't very important. They're just trying to appeal to people with their niche issues, divide the country based on each of those issues for every single voter and then push people to the polls. And if that doesn't work and it doesn't, well, then they'll just steal elections. A more recent White House fact sheet detailing what the administration has done to, quote, restore and strengthen American democracy, end quote, led with an unrelated matter, the passage of the infrastructure bill. As the Guardian Sam Levine put it, the section on voting rights here is a little bit of accomplishment padding. Perhaps Biden deserves fairer coverage, but that doesn't mean it's fair to credit him for things he hasn't done. Oh, man. So objective right there. You got that? They take the White House fact sheet as if it's all actually factual and then worry that it might not be completely factual. Still, if Milbank perhaps muddled his point with his long prelude about the quality of Biden's coverage going out on that limb, he successfully brought attention to a more urgent underlying matter. The GOP is the enemy of democracy. Full stop. It is not Democrats who are waging a well-funded war to suppress the vote, reviving Jim Crow era electoral tactics, installing apparatchiks and gaming the rules to subvert voter intentions, chasing dedicated election officials out of their posts with threats and intimidation or fomenting political violence. Those are the deeds of Republicans alone and Milbank's willingness not to subject the matter to the media's pathological both sides tendencies should be commended except for the fact that it is actually Democrats doing each and every one of those things. These people are so stupid. Every fake vote entered into an election cancels out a real vote. That happened millions of times across the country. Only an idiot would compare the small moves around the edges toward election integrity being carried out in certain states to Jim Crow. That is the space of absolute morons. 
Installing apparatchiks and gaming the rules. Well, I talked about that a bit earlier. We know for a fact that they changed election law and rules outside of state legislatures, which by itself is anti-constitutional and illegal. As far as apparatchiks go, that's all they do at every level of our entire society. This is utterly absurd. They're referring to citizens getting involved at a local level in their election process. And then chasing election officials out through threats and intimidation. Well, that's what they call every single way anyone disagrees with these officials. And as far as political violence is concerned, again, that is entirely the purview of the left. They literally spent an entire year with constant political violence. And you could actually argue that the DA's allowing all these criminals to just run back out on the streets after committing violence in order to destabilize cities and intimidate people is also political violence. And they have done it in country after country around the world. The results are not an unknown. This is not a byproduct of a just and right policy. This nevertheless leaves the original tension between what Milbank saw as poor coverage of the president and the need to help preserve the republic unresolved. Perhaps the answer is one of perspective. No true partisan for democracy can simply be a reflexive defender of a politician, no matter how well intended. Adopting this tendency will only further undermine the civic edifice, and it plays into the hands of democracy's would-be gravediggers. But politicians are the servants of democracy. Its beneficiaries are ordinary Americans. They are who truly deserve our best effort and our best coverage. It is possible to achieve everything Milbank wants by putting the American people front of mind. And you know, that is what they always do at the communist rag, the new republic. And you know, you can trust Jason Lincoln's because his very clever Twitter handle is DC Ever, like deceiver. Very smart. It should be lost on no one, by the way, that the White House had meetings with news organizations a week or so ago demanding that they give Joe Biden better coverage. And of course, their spin on it is that they were just educating the media about what they were really doing so that they could be covered in the right way and not the wrong way, because everybody out there knows from their real life that Joe Biden is the most popular president ever. And that's how he got 81 million real legal American votes, even though there's no proof of that anywhere whatsoever. And if there was, you would think that by now they would have bothered trying to prove it. But instead, they block every attempt to actually get the right answer. And they lie every time the right answer is exposed. Today, there is a hearing in Pima County, with like Sonny Borelli, Wendy Rogers, Mark Fincham, uh, they had uh, Doug Logan on there. I was watching that a little earlier. Maybe we can talk about some of that tomorrow. But for that event, they allowed people from the community to request tickets and attend. And so what did the communists do? Well, they flooded that invitation line with tons of fake and false names in the hope that no one in the community would actually show up. And of course, they failed at doing that. And once again, exposed how much they desire the truth about the 2020 election to be obscured from the public. It's good, though, 
that our media organizations are willing to meet with the fake administration and think about making their coverage of the fake administration better. That's not what state media does at all in a communist country. And that's how you know we're not a communist country. And speaking of transparent reviews of the elections, boom segue. The Georgia record links to this piece by a writer named Colin Kelly. Stay the hell out of Fulton County. Pitts blasts Purdue's ballot inspection lawsuit. Fulton County Commission Chairman Rob Pitts has sent a very direct message to GOP gubernatorial candidate David Perdue, who filed a lawsuit Friday seeking to inspect absentee ballots from the November 2020 election. Stay the hell out of Fulton County. My advice to him would be to concentrate on his upcoming election and leave Fulton County alone, Pitt said in a statement. The lawsuit filed just four days after Purdue launched his campaign to unseat fellow Republican Brian Kemp echoes the failed legal challenges by supporters of former President Donald Trump, who claim massive election fraud put Joe Biden in office. The former U.S. senator who was ousted in the January runoff against Democrat John Ossoff is a vocal Trump supporter and continues to repeat baseless claims of election fraud. His lawsuit seeks to inspect 147,000 of Fulton's absentee ballots, despite digital images of the ballots being available to the public since June. Three ballot counts and multiple investigations by state election officials have turned up no evidence of election fraud. Pitts called the lawsuit baseless. And of course, you have just received once again all of the slogans in order. That's how you know they're all true. It's through the repetition of the slogans that you come to understand their truth and infallibility. It's disheartening to see former Senator Perdue engage in this desperate attempt to appeal to believers of the big lie, Pitt said, referring to the ongoing conspiracy theory that Trump lost the election due to voter fraud. The 2020 election is over. The votes have been counted three times, including once by hand, and no evidence of wrongdoing has ever been found, except for that it has. It's clear that the former sen senator is only doing this to play dirty politics and try to get out of a tough primary. Kemp's spokesman, Cody Hall, was also dismissive of the lawsuit in a statement to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. David Perdue is so concerned about election fraud that he waited a year to file a lawsuit that conveniently coincided with his disastrous campaign launch. And that quote was from last week. We already heard that before. But there you go. It's all baseless. They can't believe it. It's so desperate. How could they be doing this? And that can honestly be read as complete and utter panic. That, my friends, is insanity. And I know people don't like David Perdue because he didn't stand up against election fraud in December and January, and they're not very happy that Trump endorsed him. But I am really interested to see what impact this has on that case, because they expect to find potentially 30,000 illegitimate ballots just in that set of 147,000. That would be 20% of those ballots. And far more than necessary to cover the reported difference between the winner, Joe Biden, and the actual winner, Donald Trump. Now, some interesting news came out of El Salvador this weekend. Uh, yesterday, the president of El Salvador, Nayib Bukele, tweeted, U.S. taxpayers should know that their government is using their money to fund communist movements against a democratic elected and with a 90% approval rating 
government in El Salvador. It's not working, though. The people of El Salvador won't go back to that terrible past. And why would the illegitimate American government be funding communist movements in El Salvador? And does it have anything to do with the fact that the president of El Salvador is beginning to use Bitcoin as legal currency and his government is officially supporting Bitcoin? I wonder if the central bankers and the global communists have something to do with this odd occurrence where American support is being put behind disruptive communist movements in Central American, Latin American countries. That has never happened before, except for the fact that it's been happening constantly down there for decades and other places in the world, too. And speaking of people who do that sort of thing, this is from the National Pulse yesterday, Kay Smythe. Democrat-run cities with Soros-backed DAs are watching crime spiral out of control. New York City Council member Antonio Reynoso has introduced a bill to abolish the New York City Police Department's gang database as gang crime reaches a new high throughout the city. And I got to say, for a communist, that's really smart, right? The best way to solve a problem is to erase all record of that problem ever existing. By October 2021, more than 100 children aged under 18 were involved in street gang-related shootings. Almost all of the children killed in gang-related violence in New York City are minorities, predominantly black. A police source told the New York Post that, quote, the gangs are eating these kids alive, end quote. A gang member has also been arrested in relation to the stabbing murder of a Columbia University student, injuring a tourist and going on a knife-wielding rampage on the school's university campus last week. Reynoso's move to disband the NYPD's gang unit is similar to that of Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon. In December 2020, Gascon entered office and released his plans to significantly downsize and dissolve L.A. County's hardcore gangs unit. Both Gascon and Reynoso have received donations and support from members of the infamous globalist Soros family. Steve Cooley, the former L.A. D.A., referred to Gascon as a, quote, functional outlaw. Basically, George Gascon is a George Soros puppet, and that is dangerous, end quote. When entering office, Gascon immediately prevented his prosecutors from seeking the death penalty or issuing a cash bail for nonviolent criminals. When Gascon's plans, coupled with two California propositions, 47 and 57, and Assembly Bill 109, the limited policing on gangs led to an immediate explosion in gang activity from prematurely released violent gang-affiliated felons. In 2019, Los Angeles was statistically one of the safest cities in the United States. Homicides dropped to five per 100,000 people and violent crime was at 560 per 100,000. Less than a year into his tenure at, as district attorney, violent crime, attacks and robberies of citizens, animal cruelty and heightened rates of human trafficking throughout Southern California have risen. Between 2019 and 2021, homicide rose 116%. Aggravated assault increased 19.9%. Vehicular theft rose 24%, with a 224% increase in individuals being shot. By February 2021, gang-related homicides were up 266.7%, and gang-related shootings increased 133.3%. Attacks on police officers also rose 300% in the first 18 days of January 2021, when compared to the same time period in 2020. And man, I hope we don't ever find out that branches of federal law enforcement might have some relationship with those gangs. 
and that these DAs actually want those gang members to be out on the streets to help with the process of destabilizing these cities so that people flee these cities. Because you see, to get that real good reset in place and to turn these into global cities, well, the global communists are going to need your real estate. You got a home, you got to move. You got an apartment, going to price you out of it. You got a business, well, we need that building. I'm sorry. So here's a gang. Is it exactly like the mafia running a city? Why, yes, it is. And is global communism exactly like what would happen if a mafia expanded worldwide? And then let's say that mafia had its hands in all sorts of things, right? Drug trafficking, human trafficking, governmental corruption. At some point, might that mafia think, you know what? If we had people in government or could at least control everybody in government, I bet we'd have a much easier time making the money we wanted to make and having the society we wanted to have. Perhaps we should go ahead and do that. I wonder if they've ever figured that out. But I know, I know, I really need to stop calling them communists. This is from The Hill on Friday. PA school mask mandate struck down by state Supreme Court. This is Lexi Lonis writing for The Hill. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court struck down a K-12 school mask mandate imposed by Governor Tom Wolf's administration. The court did not release an opinion for the decision reached on Friday, but said one would come soon, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported. The state Supreme Court decision upholds an earlier ruling from the Commonwealth Court in November that ruled against a mandate that required students to wear masks indoors amid the pandemic. The lower court ruled at the time that Allison Beam, the acting state health secretary, did not have the authority to impose a mask mandate, acted without an existing disaster emergency enacted by the governor, and did not follow state laws to enact regulations, according to WGAL. The suit was originally filed by top Republicans in the state, two religious schools, three school districts, and parents in Pennsylvania, according to WGAL. Wolf's administration imposed the statewide mask mandate in September, and it remained in place throughout litigation after it was challenged by parents and conservative groups. A spokesperson for the governor told the outlet it was an extremely disappointing ruling and encouraged schools to keep masking despite the lifted health order and apparently despite all proof that that mask mandate does absolutely nothing to protect anyone. It is actually extremely harmful to children. And by the way, children are at zero risk from the coronavirus. The administration's top priority from the beginning of this pandemic has been and remains protecting public health and safety, including students and staff to ensure in-person learning continues. Spokesperson Beth Rementer said, according to the Inquirer, masking is a proven and simple way to keep kids in school without interruption and participate in sports and other extracurricular activities, she added. And that view, too, of course, is completely anti-scientific. On the heels of that, Pennsylvania's WPXI reports that acting health secretary Allison Beam is resigning at the end of the year, which is probably the right thing to do when you're a communist who just had her illegal and anti-scientific mask mandate shot down by the state Supreme Court, which, by the way, it consists of five Democratic appointees and two Republican appointees. And you might pick up a theme here with these next couple stories. This is from yesterday. Democrat governor declares COVID-19 emergency over, says it's their own darn fault. 
if unvaccinated get sick. This is from Fox News yesterday. Jessica Chasmar. Colorado Governor Jared Polis, a Democrat, declared in a new interview that the COVID-19 emergency is over and that he won't be implementing another statewide mask mandate in response to the spread of the Omicron variant, explaining that if people aren't vaccinated at this point, it's their own darn fault if they get sick. Everybody had more than enough opportunity to get vaccinated, Polis told Colorado Public Radio on Friday. Hopefully it's been at your pharmacy, your grocery store, a bus near you or at big events. At this point, if you haven't been vaccinated, it's really your own darn fault. And yes, one thing people should have taken advantage of is the ability to find a bus in a parking lot and then let some random public health authority inject you with a substance you don't know anything about because some people promised you that you wouldn't get sick from a disease that couldn't kill you on the basis that you might achieve herd immunity, even though now, of course, we know that the COVID shot does not prevent infection, transmission, serious illness, or death. And of course, it can never achieve herd immunity without doing any of those things. But yes, find a bus in the middle of a parking lot somewhere and then ask someone to inject you with something. We are going to straight up have vaccine junkies just walking around like zombies. Maybe that's why the CDC still has their zombie warning up on their website. Those who get sick, it's almost entirely their own darn fault, he continued. I don't want to say that nobody will get the virus if they're vaccinated, but it's very rare. No, it's not. Just to put it in perspective, of about the 1,400 people hospitalized, less than 200 or 16% are vaccinated. And many of them are older or have other conditions. 84% of the people in our hospitals are unvaccinated, and they absolutely had every chance to get vaccinated. And at this point, I think it's almost like they made a deliberate decision to not get vaccinated. Duh. I still encourage everybody who hasn't been vaccinated to get protected. And for those who are, make sure to get that booster after six months. The data shows it's important and very likely even more so with this Omicron variant. And that is absolutely in no way whatsoever what the data shows. Polis said he supported local jurisdictions instituting their own mandates according to their individual needs, but the state should stay out of it. The emergency is over, he said. You know, public health officials don't get to tell people what to wear. That's just not their job. Public health officials would say to always wear a mask because it decreases flu and decreases other airborne illnesses, except it doesn't. But that's not something that you require. You don't tell people what to wear. You don't tell people to wear a jacket when they go out in winter and force them to wear it. If they get frostbite, it's their own darn fault. If you haven't been vaccinated, that's your choice. I respect that. But it's your fault when you're in the hospital with COVID, he added. Polis lamented that there is an alternate misinformation universe contributing to people not getting vaccinated. And this should be read as a complete and total detachment from reality. Again, everything he just said right there is completely and utterly anti-scientific. There is no data to back up any of those points, including and especially things like masks preventing the flu. But the real world signal inside this is one of the countries most blatantly communist governors, a governor of a state with a profoundly illegal election process and a secretary of state who is going down hard. He's now giving up on government through executive fiat 
using COVID-19 emergency orders. And it seems like this is a forming wave happening right now. The rejection, the full on rejection of the entire coronavirus regime is really something that you can detect now. People are understanding that something is wrong and something always has been wrong. And a very smart friend of mine keeps talking about how he's hopeful that the Robert F. Kennedy book will go viral. I, too, hope that it will go fully viral. Everybody, I cannot stress enough how much you need to know the information inside that book and know who Anthony Fauci really is. When you get to the part about their experimentation, foster children on the gay community, on the black community, on Africans, you will know for certain what all of this is. And I wonder with the effectiveness of the counter narrative really beginning to show up in public conversation, I wonder if people actually are finding out about this book and rather than talking directly about the book, they are more inclined to believe and share the actual truth that is being shared by independent media outlets and independent reporters. I think that might be what's going on here, but we'll see either way. There's a lot of movement in this direction. This is from just the news yesterday. Kevin Bessler, Illinois lawmaker yanks bill making unvaxxed foot hospital bills if they get COVID-19. After receiving what he called violent threats, a lawmaker has pulled a bill that would have required unvaccinated Illinoisans to pay for their hospital bills if they caught COVID-19. Illinois State Rep. Jonathan Carroll sponsored the proposal he said was aimed at prompting people to consider the cost of their choices and their effects on the state's health care system. He also said he hoped it would drive up vaccination rates. Carroll said in a statement on Twitter that he decided not to pursue the legislation because of the unintended divisive nature of the proposal. Oh, yeah. When he was originally coming up with it, it sounded so unifying. And by the way, what is with these people thinking that the relationship to the insurance companies is somehow a positive one for people who are vaccinated? And what exactly is the benefit here for the insurance companies? I'm wondering myself with my own health insurance, why haven't they told me a list of ways how to keep myself healthy, how to increase my immune response so that I would be unlikely to have a negative result from the coronavirus and then need expensive hospital care? How come they don't care about that? Oh, it's because the federal government is footing the bills for the coronavirus care. Oh, maybe that has something to do with it. But what about all the negative vaccine reactions that are going to represent themselves in myriad ways for the next few decades as we have all sorts of immune deficiencies popping up that lead to all sorts of serious disease problems? What's going to happen then? Is insurance going to pay for those? Oh, people might just die faster. Oh, got it. Yeah, that's a conspiracy theory. Don't pay attention. This shot isn't destroying your immune system at all. And then, of course, he expresses the appropriate whining, pretending that he got all sorts of violent threats and whatever. Now, it looks like there's some interesting news out of Japan. Uh, Representative Thomas Massey retweeted this series of tweets from a doctor named Aaron Cariotti. 
Japan's Ministry of Health is taking a sensible, ethical approach to COVID vaccines. They've recently labeled the vaccines with a warning about myocarditis and other risks. They also reaffirmed their commitment to adverse event reporting to document potential side effects. Japan's Ministry of Health states, although we encourage all citizens to receive the COVID-19 vaccination, it is not compulsory or mandatory. Vaccination will be given only with the consent of the person to be vaccinated after the information provided. Please get vaccinated of your own decision, understanding both the effectiveness in preventing infectious diseases and the risk of side effects. No vaccination will be given without consent. Please do not force anyone in your workplace or those around you to be vaccinated and do not discriminate against those who have not been vaccinated. Now, that would have been a very reasonable thing to have said in the United States a year ago. But of course, that's not the goal. The goal is to make sure everyone is vaccinated so that there is no control group. And if there's no control group, then all of the negative reactions from everyone who got the vaccine will just be seen as being caused by the individual symptom rather than the fact that all of them collectively are reactions to their immune systems being destroyed by an experimental gene therapy being pushed by a doctor who is absolutely the historical equivalent of Joseph Mengele. And that, of course, is Nazi Dr. Anthony Fauci. And so finally, I just want to hit this from Becker News. This is Kyle Becker's site. This is today. Secret agreement formed by U.S. government to own vaccine during COVID-19's first origins. The U.S. government entered into a secretive agreement with one of the major mRNA vaccine manufacturers, Moderna, right as China began mobilizing in preparation for the forthcoming coronavirus pandemic. The NIH and Moderna confidential agreement was formed only months prior to the COVID-19 pandemic sweeping the world in late October and December 2019. However, May 2019 would be a pivotal period in the genesis of the coronavirus in China, as this report will highlight below. In May 2019, NIH and Moderna entered into a research collaboration agreement to develop vaccine candidates against Middle East Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus, that's MERS-CoV and Nipah virus, a public citizen investigation notes. The project was focused on evaluating candidates in animal models. NIH signed an amendment to the document on January 13th, 2020, the day the agency and Moderna finalized the design of their novel coronavirus vaccine. Oh, good. That was like right when it was getting to America. What amazing timing. The amendment is significantly redacted and does not mention the new coronavirus. However, the close proximity suggests the terms of the contract may have been expanded to apply to this new project. At the very least, the terms may have been instructive for the mRNA 1273 project. The NIH Moderna secret agreement was in close proximity to another event, China's initial mobilizations for a coming coronavirus pandemic in May 2019. Purchases of PCR tests in China's Hubei province surged months before the first official reports of a novel coronavirus case there, according to a report by Australia-based cybersecurity company Internet 2.0. Nikkei Asia reported about 67.4 million yuan, around $10.5 million at current rates, was spent on PCR tests in Hubei during 2019, nearly double the 2018 total, with the upswing starting in May, according to the report. The report casts further doubt on China's official line about the origins of the virus, a topic that has fueled tensions between Beijing and Washington, Nikkei Asia added. 
China's foreign ministry has disputed the report's findings. However, the NIH and Moderna have been working together for at least four years on an mRNA drug for coronaviruses. It was only in May 2019 that the confidential agreement was entered into. The National Institutes of Health may own intellectual property that undergirds a leading coronavirus vaccine being developed by Moderna, according to documents obtained by Axios and an analysis from Public Citizen, the June 2020 Axios report said. Why it matters. Because the federal government has an actual stake in this vaccine, it could try to make the vaccine free or low-cost public good with wide distribution if the product turns out to be safe and effective, the report added. Or the federal government could wield the so-called mRNA vaccine as a political instrument to further an agenda while providing Big Pharma with a liability shield that isn't merited under the law. And Becker links to Glenn Beck's appearance on Tucker Carlson and then the actual report. You can find both in this article. Nonetheless, the NIH and Moderna are squabbling over who actually owns the patent rights. The New York Times reported on the legal battle between the two entities in November 2021. Moderna and the National Institutes of Health are in a bitter dispute over who deserves credit for inventing the central component of the company's powerful coronavirus vaccine, a conflict that has broad implications for the vaccine's long-term distribution and billions of dollars in future profits, the Times reported. The vaccine grew out of a four-year collaboration between Moderna and the NIH, the government's biomedical research agency, a partnership that was widely hailed when the shot was found to be highly effective. A year ago this month, the government called it the NIH Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. That's so good. The National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, headed by Dr. Anthony Fauci, is an NIH division that provided the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where several experts believe the SARS-CoV-2 virus may have escaped with considerable funding through the nonprofit group EcoHealth Alliance. The funding persisted throughout the Trump administration, which had banned the funding of gain-of-function research. The U.S. funding of the Wuhan laboratory was accompanied by several defense agencies, including the Pentagon, as can be seen below. And he links that. When reports began to surface that SARS-CoV-2 may have originated from the Wuhan laboratory, U.S. officials worked behind the scenes to quash such reports. The Lancet issued a now infamous letter calling such scientists who backed the hypothesis conspiracy theorists. A number of scientists subsequently changed their statements to respect the thesis as more evidence arose corroborating the lab leak story. The public citizen investigation discusses some of the ramifications of the U.S. government potentially owning one of the mRNA therapeutic drugs being labeled vaccines. The CDC actually changed the definition of vaccine so that the mRNA prophylactic therapeutics would qualify. The U.S. government may jointly own a potential COVID-19 vaccine, the report notes. At least two patent applications that appear essential to the vaccine name federal scientists as investors, giving the U.S. government ownership if the patents are granted. Collaboration agreements also support the government's ownership stake in mRNA-1273. The co-ownership provides significant rights, the report added. For example, assuming there were no other monopolies, the government could make, use, or sell the technology without consent of Moderna. It could also license the technology to others, including other va vaccine manufacturers or the World Health Organization without the consent of Moderna. There you have it. The U.S. government has a documented, verifiable conflict of interest in issuing federal vaccine mandates. It has abused the law to violate the rights of U.S. citizens and has a non-legal stake ensuring that American citizens take the vaccines. This would explain much of the federal government's deception of the American people with claims that the vaccines are 100% safe and effective, even as the science continues to debunk its false claims on a daily basis. Now, if you have read or are reading The Real Anthony Fauci by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., 
you would know that this is a part of a decades long process to increase the political and financial power of career bureaucrats who have overseen a complete and total degradation in American healthcare and have overseen some of the most heinous medical experiments you could possibly imagine. These people are absolutely sick. We need for this to reach critical mass so that society as a whole can deal with this problem and with these people. Anthony Fauci should be tried in international criminal court immediately. The man will go down as one of the most evil men to ever walk this earth. And I was listening to the book this morning and thinking, man, why didn't anyone report this stuff when it was happening? And the truth is people did and no one paid attention. And if someone heard, they would be like, oh man, that's terrible. But like, what can I do about it? And they didn't care because that's what not caring is. We need to be active about this stuff in our communities and with our friends and with our family. We need to be speaking about this stuff. Hey, did you hear about that study that says masks don't work at all? You got to stop letting your kids be forced to wear masks. Why isn't everyone having that conversation right now? And the only reason I can find is the same reason I have come to over and over and over and over and over again. This is the party of false decorum. People are incentivized to lie to one another about some of the most important subjects in the world because they don't want to be called crazy. They don't want to risk their social standing. They don't want to have difficult conversations. We have to get past that. These stakes are too high. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic, and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting, or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. 
I'll see you next time. Out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofi. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!